Hi, this is Madeline Carson, fourth year medical student at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and future family medicine physician. This is Clinical Pearls. Welcome back, podcast family. We are wrapping up our summary review of ACOG's Clinical Consensus Bulletin from September 2021. The title is Pharmacologic Stepwise Multimodal Approach for Postpartum Pain Management. And in this episode, we'll finish this review by focusing on breastfeeding implications. Factors that affect drug transfer into the breast milk include the lipophilic nature of the drug, the degree to which the drug binds to protein, the drug's bioavailability, the medication's pKa and milk pH, and the drug's molecular weight. Also, the amount of breast milk consumed by the infant obviously makes a difference, and the timing of medication administration relative to breastfeeding episodes also is a factor. BirthTracks.com. What is BirthTracks.com? It's an online platform for medical students, residents, OBGYNs, and midwives to track important information about their birth and procedure outcomes. And listen to this. If you are a student or resident, BirthTracks.com is completely free to use for an entire year. Why BirthTracks? Because it allows for accountability for improved patient outcomes. It helps identify areas in need of quality improvement, and you can use these stats to grow and promote your practice or just grow and track your training. Intrigued? I'm going to give you more information about BirthTracks.com a little bit later on in this podcast. In part one, we stated that acetaminophen and ibuprofen are first-line analgesics for postpartum pain, including those patients who've had a cesarean section. Orally administered acetaminophen and NSAIDs are excreted into breast milk in very low concentrations. The concentration of ibuprofen in breast milk decreases with longer duration of breastfeeding and with decreases in the protein concentration of breast milk. So according to the college, given the efficacy of these medications in addressing pain and their low concentration in breast milk, both are acceptable and preferred choices for postpartum pain management. Again, breastfeeding is not a contraindication for acetaminophen or ibuprofen use. Well, what about intravenous Toradol or Kidorolac? I mean, intravenous Kidorolac is fantastic for pain control, whether it's a vaginal delivery or cesarean section or even any gynecological surgery. Well, injectable and oral forms of Kidorolac are used to treat moderate pain in the immediate postpartum period. And even though the manufacturer puts caution in their labeling for use in lactating individuals, it's important to remember this clinical pearl. Based on the effectiveness of Kidorolac as a component of multimodal analgesic, particularly after cesarean birth, and the fact that Kidorolac use would likely have little, if any, concentration in breast milk soon after delivery, Kidorolac is acceptable for use in the immediate postpartum period. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. 
Don't forget to go to birthtracks.com. This is so easy to use. This is your personal data entry tool designed for providers to quickly enter birth data at 2 a.m. It only takes one to two minutes on your mobile phone or your computer. This is a way to keep all your personal OB outcomes data all on one dashboard. Vaginal birth counts, primary cesarean rates, operative vaginal births, emergency cesarean rates, postpartum hemorrhages, VBAC success rates, vaginal lacs, NICU admissions, preterm birth rates, low APGARs, and even breastfeeding stats. As an added plus, it allows you to customize your data collection so you get to decide what kind of outcomes you want to track. Get the stats that you need easily and quickly with no need to go through the process of medical record reviews or hand calculating from a birth log. BirthTracks.com actually allows you to use the platform for free for 60 days. And as we stated before, if you're a student or a resident, it's free for an entire year. So go to BirthTracks.com now and get started for free for better accountability, better tracking, and better patient care. Well, what about those patients who require stronger medications to control their pain? Remember, that's that balancing act that we mentioned in part one. That balancing act is appropriately paying attention to the patient's complaint and addressing the pain issue, at the same time not exposing them to excessive opioids that could put them down the road of dependency and, more importantly, though, could cause excess sedation in the child because opioids, unlike the NSAID categories, are a little different story. Opioids are lipophilic, have a low molecular weight, and are generally weak bases, all properties that facilitate transfer into breast milk. Now, some undergo conversion to metabolites that have a significant analgesic and sedative effect. Codeine and tramadol rely on cytochrome P450 for metabolism to their active analgesic forms. And there's different polymorphisms in the genes that encode that CYP450 enzyme system. Actually, up to 4 to 5% of people in the U.S. are ultra-rapid metabolizers. These individuals generate higher levels of the active analgesic form in the serum, and by extension then, that higher concentration is also found in the breast milk. There are several published case reports of breastfed infants with excessive sedation or depression in the setting of maternal coding use, as well as one report of an infant death. These events result in the U.S. FDA making changes to the labeling of coding and tramadol, warning that breastfeeding is not recommended while these medications are being taken. Once again, the FDA states that coding and tramadol should not be used with breastfeeding because we can't really identify well which patients are these ultra-rapid metabolizers. Now, it is true there are some genetic tests that can actually identify if a person is an ultra-rapid metabolizer, but those tests are expensive and they're not widely commercially available. Well, that has to do specifically with codeine and tramadol, but what about oxycodone? Well, oxycodone is actually partially metabolized by the P450 system. In a retrospective study, nursing individuals were asked to recall perceived infant CNS depression during periods when they were taking oxycodone. So remember, that's one issue here that this was based on patient recall. But it did take their accounts into consideration when they were taking oxycodone, codeine, or acetaminophen. 
central nervous system depression was perceived in 20% of neonates and those mothers who were taking oxycodone compared to fewer than 1% of neonates who were taking acetaminophen and 17% of neonates taking codeine. So given the inter-individual variation in metabolism of all opioids, as well as the risk of maternal and neonatal adverse effects in individuals who are ultra-rapid metabolizers of codeine, monitoring for excessive sedation and other adverse effects in the parent and the infant is prudent for all individuals who are prescribed opioids. As with all inpatients, of course, postpartum individuals should also be assessed for the risk of falls or impairment related to fatigue or medication use. Remember, not all opioids are metabolized through the P450 system, but a lot of them are. All opioids are metabolized through one of two systems, either the CYP450 or, to a lesser extent, the UDP, glucuronosyl transferase system. Remember, that's the issue with P450. As we've all learned, there's a lot of drug-to-drug interactions that can affect the P450 system. So if a patient is giving a pain medication, a narcotic, an opioid, that is metabolized to P450 in order to make the active metabolite and therefore give the patient pain relief, but they're also taking another medication that can induce P450, you can see how they can very quickly get a very high dose, almost a very toxic dose of true potent opioid because of that conversion. It's true also, of course, that if they're rapid metabolizers, they also clear it faster, but not before they peak with a very high level of pure metabolite that can put them at overdose risk. Now, there's also medications that are not metabolized through P450. For example, hydromorphone, morphine, and oxymorphone are not metabolized through the P45 system, and that's why they can get much more stable levels traditionally with those medications compared to those that rely on the P450 system. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with that information? I mean, not use opioids at all in breastfeeding individuals? Well, that's kind of what the FDA suggests. ACOG, of course, has a more of a middle ground in that we have to, again, appropriately care for the patient's pain. But when opioids are going to be prescribed, then they should be of the lowest potency possible and only for the shortest duration. It's also part of this shared decision-making where the mother should be told about the excess risk of sedation in the child if breastfeeding occurs once she is taking tramadol codeine or even oxycodone. And that's why it's important to limit the number of pills given at discharge, not just for postpartum patients, but for all patients in general. You know, in medicine, it's never that clear cut, right? I mean, even professional societies don't always agree one with the other. Well, that's the case with the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology. That's an organization called SOAP. They don't agree with the FDA statement or with the American Academy of Pediatrics that puts these restrictions on the use of oral opioids. And the reason is they say, look, all opioids have the potential to enter into the breast milk and have the potential to cause neonatal depression and sedation. So it's important to not withhold pain medication from a patient because of fear of excess sedation when we can just keep an eye on it. And I agree with that. Remember, that's why I said at the beginning, this really is a balancing act. 
I am definitely not opposed to a postpartum or post-op patient receiving opioid narcotics when necessary. But the truth is, I rarely prescribe them because I do try to educate the patient that scheduled alternating dosages of acetaminophen and ibuprofen really does wonders, especially in the first 48 to 72 hours. If I do write a patient for an opioid, it's for a low-dose one, and I never prescribe more than 10, maximum 12 pills. But remember, it is a case-by-case decision, and this whole message and the message of the consensus statement is absolutely not to withhold pain medication from a patient, but to stop ordering that as a reflex without thinking. Remember, it's a multimodal, stepwise approach to pain management. And if we can get good control with the first tier, then we don't have to go to these narcotic options because even non-pharmacological ways to treat pain may work. Well, that brings us to a wrap. We have summarized the ACOG September 2021 Clinical Consensus Bulletin on pharmacological multimodal, stepwise approaches for postpartum pain management. Remember, it's very unique as women's healthcare providers that when addressing postpartum pain, we don't just have to focus and concentrate on the patient's needs, but also on the needs and the safety of her child, specifically if they're breastfeeding. That's why this issue of ultra-rapid metabolizers is such a big deal because we don't want to end up causing excess sedation or potentially worse issues in that nursing infant. We're so thankful that you're part of our listening family, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.